Every decision you make as an AUSA has an enormous impact on the lives of real people. You're listening to Nick Bunch, a former assistant United States attorney and currently a partner with Haynes and Boone in Dallas, Texas. Welcome to the Fraud Fighter Podcast. The bakery is famous for fruitcake. An accounting clerk was trying to reconcile the books one day, saw a series of checks that were paid to credit card companies that she knew the bakery didn't have accounts at. When it was all said and done, after our investigation, we had almost $17 million. In this episode, we discuss the decisions a prosecutor must make in every investigation the most common misconception of federal prosecutors, the $17 million embezzlement from the Collins Street Bakery, and the importance of telling the story with the numbers. He was a former assistant United States attorney for 11 years, and he's currently a partner with Haynes Boone in Dallas, Texas, where he specializes in white collar and government investigations. Nick Bunch, welcome to the Fraud Fighter Podcast. Thanks, Robert. Excited to be here. Thank you for taking some time to share your story. How did you decide to become an assistant United States attorney? Yeah, so it was always something in my mind, even from the day I started law school. I had worked at Wild Gottschall and Mangie's between college and law school, and I knew several folks there who talked about going to work as an assistant U.S. attorney and kind of understanding what the job was like and and the opportunity that it presented. So it was always on my mind, even when I was a first-year law student. And uh, after I got out of law school, I clerked for for a year for a judge on the Fifth Circuit, and I spent several years in private practice. And one of the things that I knew I wanted to get out of my legal career was an opportunity to be in the courtroom. I wanted to try cases. And if you've spent any time at a large law firm, you know that trying cases is not something that they do that frequently. And when they have those times, when they have those cases that finally do get to trial, it's definitely not the first, second, third, the junior associates, even the senior associates, even the junior partners, they're getting those chances. And so I felt like if I was ever going to get an opportunity to prove myself in the courtroom, I would need to go into government service. I had the interest in criminal law, specifically in white collar criminal investigations, and the ability to pair that with the chance to get in the courtroom and try cases made it a natural fit for me to join the U.S. Attorney's Office. I had a previous guest that stated it's a lot easier to go from government sector to private sector versus going to private sector get a career started then go in the government sector and and try to become an AUSA. Do you, do you find that to be true? Uh, I, actually, not necessarily. I think often the places like the U.S. Attorney's Office, the Department of Justice, they want to see that you have some experience first. So they want to see that you've spent time learning how to be a lawyer, honing your craft as a writer, as a legal researcher, as somebody who's able to put get together cases before joining uh, a place like the U.S. Attorney's Office. You know, there are only so many spots available at U.S. Attorney's Offices around the country, and hiring for them is pretty competitive. And so they want to see some experience first that you've 
that you've shown that you can do the job as a lawyer. Within the Dallas U.S. Attorney's Office, the path is either several years at a private law firm, often with a judicial clerkship, or it's through the district attorney's office, whether that's Dallas County or one of the surrounding counties to, to Dallas, people who have actual experience trying cases, prosecuting individuals, handling stuff in court. So I think it's mixed. I think that coming out of the government is a challenge because if you're looking to go into a law firm, any law firm, and you're coming out of the government, there's always the question of business development. In the government, is you don't have a book of business. You don't have an obligation to develop a business. Cases just come to you through agencies, through your supervisor or whatnot, and you prosecute them. And there's a never-ending supply of work at the government. You can always find more cases to prosecute. Whereas in the private sector, there's an obligation to generate that business and to to bring that in the door, to keep yourself busy, to keep uh, other attorneys busy that you work with. And so it's a, it's a totally different um, set of skills, I think, when you leave the government, that it's not as much focused on just being a lawyer, just doing the job of investigating cases or prosecuting cases or trying cases, but doing all those things plus the networking, the marketing, the sales aspect of business development. What type of cases did you prosecute as an AUSA? So I joined the Dallas office back in November of 2010. And if you think back to that time, we're coming out of Lehman Brothers, AIG, the subprime mortgage crisis, and there were a huge number of cases, investigations in the mortgage fraud space. Mm -hmm. And so in 2010, Congress created a series of AUSA positions and placed them in various locations around the country where there was a need to prosecute folks engaged in mortgage fraud. And I was lucky enough to get hired into a spot in the Dallas area specific to do mortgage fraud cases. And so that's how I got my start. I uh, joined in November 2010, and I prosecuted a large number of, of mortgage fraud cases. And they were your typical straw buyer kind of schemes where somebody recruits people who have good credit to purchase a house in their name. Uh, the purchasers are convinced that they don't have to spend any money. Uh, there's no money out of pocket, that they are, in effect, investing in real estate. The Criminals, the people who are orchestrating the scheme, are lying or submitting false information on the loan application to get them qualified because they wouldn't otherwise qualify for some of the houses that they were purchasing. And then they'd have different ways to create some sort of artificial proceeds out of the transaction that they walked away with. And then no one pays the mortgage. No one pays the bills. No one ever moves in as promised to rent the property. That was one of the ways that they try to induce people to participate by saying, hey, we have somebody who will rent this property. Mm -hmm. And the property goes into foreclosure and the straw purchaser is left holding the bag at the end of the day. Right, because he's the one that signed all the documents. Right. He's the one that signs all the documents. The lenders really end up holding the bag at the end of the day, but it get the credit report credit history of the straw purchaser gets destroyed and the criminals make off with significant amounts of money 
through these houses. Oftentimes they're living in some of them. There were a number of cases where we had very, very, very expensive luxury houses involved in these types of schemes. And it, and it really had a huge impact uh, on the community. And so we prosecuted uh, a large number of those cases starting in 2010, myself and colleagues of mine at the U.S. Attorney's Office. The mortgage fraud cases kind of died down after a couple of years. And so my attention shifted to uh, working a large number of securities fraud cases. You know, being in Texas, we have uh, a number of oil and gas investment schemes that are out there. People always are interested, or at least they think they're interested in investing in some kind of oil and gas project where they're mm-hmm. going to hit it big and make a ton of money. In reality, most of those uh, investments, or at least a good portion of them, are bogus where either the money's never invested or or it's not invested as it was promised. So we prosecuted a number of those types of cases. I did a fair number of tax cases as well. We have sort of the typical docket of tax cases. I did healthcare fraud, embezzlement cases, corruption, and then uh, I've handled a, a variety of cases in the cyber or intellectual property space. So prosecuting somebody for stealing trade secrets from their employer, prosecuting somebody who uh, worked at a law firm actually and left and then hacked his way back in and just caused a bunch of damage, sort of a malicious mayhem kind of case where you went in and and just caused damage to the law firm's computer network, their servers, their email accounts, really impacting the firm greatly in terms of how it could conduct its business Mm -hmm. and creating huge headaches for them. So I kind of saw the whole gamut of white collar cases during my time there. What was the hardest part being in the AUSA? The way I would describe the hardest part is that every decision you make as an AUSA, whether to open a case to investigate, how broadly to investigate, to charge, to not charge, to resolve in a plea uh, or not resolve in a plea or what sort of plea to enter into or what even to advocate for at sentencing. It has an enormous impact on the lives of real people. And that's a huge responsibility when you're a prosecutor to make those decisions in a way that is fair, that is consistent with the evidence, that is just. And what I found is that the hardest part of the job is kind of how do you draw those lines in terms of who's in, who's out on any particular investigation? (laughs) Who's going to be the subject? Who's going to be your main witness? It's real easy to identify kind of the main actor in a particular scheme. You can see, okay, this person is... uh, very much the center of this criminal activity. They are the one driving it. They are the one that's making it happen. And and it's easy to say, okay, that person needs to be investigated. And if the investigation results in evidence that would prove their guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, it's easy to say they should be charged um, with a crime. But often in any white collar case, there are a fair number of individuals in any particular situation that kind of surround the main actor. And there's going to be some that have evidence that tends to point towards culpability. And there's going to be others that has where evidence presents itself to say that maybe it doesn't point towards culpability. And and you spend a lot of time, or at least I did. And, and what I think is the hardest part of the job, trying to figure out how you're going to draw those lines, mm-hmm. where you're going to say, 
these people are criminally culpable and they need to be investigated or ultimately need to be charged. And these people do not. And it's it's easier at the outset when you're simply investigating, but it certainly gets a lot harder when you reach that point of trying to decide who to charge and who not to charge. Right. What was the easiest part? The easiest part of the job, and, and I think you've probably heard this a lot, is that you show up every day knowing all you got to do is just try to do the right thing. And that's all you're you're expected to do. That's all you're trying to do. And if the right thing is to shut an investigation down, that's what you do. If the right thing is to continue advancing an investigation along, then that's what you do. And and that part of it is is easy. Figuring out exactly where that line is is the challenging part. What do you think is a common mis- misconception about federal prosecutors? Sometimes they get a bad rap just because of the publicity or someone's going overboard, especially in political circumstances. What do you think the common misconception is about federal prosecutors? I think there is a misperception that prosecutors only want to extract the most severe punishment in any particular case, and that they will use any means, any tools available to them to extract that most severe punishment. I don't think that's the case at all. I think that there are numerous cases out there where prosecutors stand up and argue for sentences lower than what you would might expect a prosecutor to ask for, and I don't think those kind of cases get the attention that they deserve because prosecutors are trying to approach every case in terms of achieving a fair and just result. Um, So I think that's one. I think two, I don't think prosecutors bring sort of any sort of political bias towards their cases. When I was a line prosecutor, that sort of um, perception or, or sense never Crossed the table at all. It was never part of the discussion, the calculus. The discussion's always focused on what's the crime, what are the elements of the crime, and can we prove those elements beyond a reasonable doubt? And once you get past that threshold, there's the added question of should this be a case that we prosecute? Does this make sense? Is this fair? That's based upon the law, and it's not based upon any of these extraneous facts like politics. So I don't, I don't think that's a fair perception of prosecutors. I would agree with you. I, when I was with the federal government, we never cared about the voting pattern. Is this person registered as this, this this party, that party? Didn't care. Religion didn't care. Race, we didn't care. It had anything to do with did you meet the elements of the crime and and should you be prosecuted? I mean, you, those type of questions were pretty easy, in my opinion. Put another point on that. I had numerous cases where all I really had was a name, John Doe. John Doe is the person. It's their bank account. The money comes in. I talk to the witnesses, or the agent talks to the witnesses and says John Doe did it. John Doe told me this or that, and you assess the case and. I didn't know what the person looked like. It didn't matter to me what they looked like. It didn't matter to me, tall, short, white, black, Hispanic, whatever. None of that matters. You just, you're prosecuting the person because the evidence all points to them. As long as you can be comfortable that the witnesses are all identifying the same person as the culpable person, but that's often borne out by the documentary evidence in a fraud case, then you prosecute them. And the rest of it doesn't matter at all. Tell me about an interesting fraud case that you prosecuted. What would be a good one? 
One that stands out most in my mind is the prosecution of the controller and his wife at the Collins Street Bakery. The Collins Street Bakery is a Texas institution. It's been around for over 100 years, maybe 125 years at this point, based out of Corsicana, Texas, which is a little town about an hour or so south of Dallas. The bakery is famous for fruitcake. And if you've never had one, it's sort of a nutty fruit pecan mixture. Uh, I can't say I'm a big fan of fruitcake. It's not something that I would choose to eat, but they are incredibly popular. They're sold all over the world. The bakery's been making them forever, and they're making a ton of money doing that. They're selling millions of fruitcakes all around the world. And so back in 2013, around the July 4th holiday, our office and the FBI, we were approached by representatives from the bakery because they had discovered that the controller, a guy named Sandy Jenkins, had stolen some significant amount of money uh, from the bakery. They had an accounting clerk who was trying to reconcile the books one day and saw a series of checks that were paid to credit card companies that she knew the bakery didn't have accounts at. Right. So I can't remember the specifics, but like a credit card to Capital One when she knew the bakery didn't have a Capital One credit card account. Sure. And so she starts digging into it and she finds a handful of checks that she can't explain. And it adds up to maybe $250,000. And so she's concerned enough about it. And she takes it to her boss, Sandy Jenkins. And I'll never forget it. The way she described it is that he turned white as a ghost, took the checks from her, said that he would take care of it, and went into his office and shut the door. And that wasn't a good enough explanation for this accounting clerk. So she pulled the evidence together and she took it to the CFO and the management of the company. And once they saw it, they realized that they had a huge problem on their hands. And so they terminated Sandy Jenkins and started digging into what exactly had gone on. And by the time they had brought it to us, the amount of losses was steadily growing. And when it was all said and done, after our investigation, we had almost $17 million worth of money that Sandy Jenkins had stolen from the Collins Street Bakery. Wow. Now, that $17 million, is that just because he was writing out – how did he cover it that long, cover his tracks? There's no way you can you can have $17 million with having something out there to cover it. So the way he did it was pretty simple. He was the sole person responsible for paying the bakery's bills. So on a regular basis, he would print out checks. They would all contain the electronic signature of the bakery's president and owner, uh-huh. and he would mail them off in, in the ordinary course. And so what he would do is he would cut a check to his personal creditor, uh, for instance, American Express. He spent a ton of money on American Express every month, and he would mail that check using the bakery's mailing service. And then he he would go into the computer system and he'd create a duplicate check for the same amount, but payable to one of their legitimate creditors. He would then void in their system, not the actual check, but he'd void in their accounting records 
the check to his personal creditor, the check to American Express. But he'd create this duplicate check that he'd print off, that'd be signed, and it would be payable to one of the bakery's actual creditors. Yeah. Right. So, for instance, the bakery sends tons of mailing all over the world. They're shipping their fruitcakes all over the world. So they spend a ton of money with the Postmaster General. So if you just looked on a monthly basis at how much money they're spending with the Postmaster General, it's going to be a big number. And it was easy for Sandy Jenkins to hide his embezzlement in the amount of money that they were sending to the mail service. So he would, he'd create two checks. One, he would mail to pay his bills, his personal bills, a second check that he would create, making it look like it's going to the postmaster general or some other legitimate creditor of the bakery, but he'd never actually mail that check. You'd just get torn up and get thrown away, never get printed in some instances. I know the amount would be the same. Would the check number be the same or just be, uh, or is it sequential? It was sequential checks and it would be off by one. But nobody okay. was looking at anything in the computer system. So the check that he created to his personal creditor, it would be voided in their accounting records, and it would go off to a voided check report that nobody was paying attention to. Nobody was looking at at all. And so that's how he was hiding the checks to his personal creditors. And he did this over the course of about eight years Basically, every month, hundreds and hundreds of checks over that particular period of time. His average American Express bill was about $98,000 a month, all for somebody who made $50,000 a year at its height. <laughs> was it the, wouldn't there be a clue? I mean, if, if, if my CFO who makes $50,000 a year starts driving up in a fancier car or having fancier vacations or has a fancier house or drive, you know, or has fancier clothes, you would think that someone's going, huh, wonder how he made that much money. He ain't making it here. You you would absolutely wonder that, and I, and there certainly was evidence determined during the investigation that that people were asking those questions. That people wondered, you know, where is Sandy getting his money? Why is Sandy always wearing these fancy watches? There would be times when Sandy would have a jeweler in the Dallas area uh, drive a vehicle down to the Corsicana Bakery and come in and show him a series of watches that he was interested in. And he would actually ask his colleagues, his friends at the bakery, what do you think of this one? What do you think of that (laughs) one? All the while knowing that he was going to use the bakery's money, he was going to steal it in order to purchase that watch. I mean, the the jeweler, even on one instance, said that they had to have an armed guard with them because of the amount of value, how expensive the watches were that they had brought down to the bakery to show Sandy Jenkins. But you're, you're absolutely right. There definitely were questions. There were definitely sort of whispers in the background about what's going on. At the end of the day, Sandy had a series of stories that he told. He, he claimed he had a family member who ran a funeral home back east that uh, was very wealthy and would send him money. And they just tried to sort of explain it like that. It's a difficult question to answer. For anybody to say, you know, in hindsight, how did you not, how, how did you not realize this? How did you not see the massive expenditures and think that there's got to be something fishy going on here? Start digging into it. But the the bakery 
was still making money. Maybe it was definitely wasn't as profitable as it it could have been. Right. But the bakery was still very successful and making money and able to kind of weather the the losses. And so questions weren't being asked that they should have. Uh, internal controls were certainly not in place like they need to be. You know, it's certainly a warning sign to any small, mid-size, or even larger business that you can't have one person who is solely responsible for the bank account and for managing the bank account and seeing that money going in is then spent in appropriate ways and not coming out through some backdoor channel to line somebody's pockets. This wasn't the only embezzlement case I prosecuted during my time at the government. It was certainly the biggest and most extravagant and, and weirdest, but you see this all over all the time where companies just put too much trust into one person. And and I get it. They're friends with that person. They see them. They go to lunch with them. They go to Christmas parties with them, whatever. But unless there's some backup, some check on the finances, you're you're just asking for this type of insider problem to happen. So where do they spend the money other than cars, jewelry, trips? How do you spend $17 million? Sandy was very much into watches, uh, high-end, very expensive Rolex, Patek Philippe, brands that I'd never heard of, kind of watches. They were very much into cars. There's a car dealership in the Dallas area that they like to use. And the running joke was at the dealership was that Sandy and his wife, Kay, bought a new car every time they needed an oil change. Just easier to get a new one at that point. So he was constantly buying new cars. We we compiled a list of all the cars they purchased in that eight-year period. And it was, I want to say, over 40 vehicles during that particular time. He bought a Rolls-Royce at one point. And that's when his wife told him, that's a little too flashy for Corsicana. So you got to go get something else. Get rid of the Rolls-Royce. The wife liked purchase Lexuses, and she only wanted a Lexus in sky blue. That was her color. She wanted a sky blue Lexus. And the reason behind it was that she didn't want people to know that she was buying a new car. Got to keep the paint scheme the same. That, that way the people don't know mm-hmm. it's a brand new car. It just looks like it's been washed. Yeah, yep. I got it. Yeah, yep. I mean, that's, that's it. Uh, private jet travel was another huge expense for them. They had a daughter who was at a chef at a restaurant in Aspen, Colorado. So they would frequently take private jet to Aspen, Colorado. They bought a second home in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So they were routinely flying to Santa Fe. I think over the course of the roughly eight years, we had um, 232 trips on a private jet in eight years. So, you know, you can do the math. That's a, quite a few each year. Santa Fe, Aspen, they did some general travel, Martha's Vineyard and kind of places like that. Of course. But, but sort of routine travel to Santa Fe and to Aspen. At one point, they took a private jet from Dallas to Austin, which if you know Texas geography, I mean, it's about a three-hour drive from Dallas. It's probably a two-hour drive from Corsicana, but I'll tell you, the traffic could be really bad on Interstate 35. So if you have the ability to take a private jet, why not? Um, (laughs) But that was solely to go down and have lunch with their daughter. Like it was a day trip for them. Probably dropped 10 grand on a day trip to Austin on the private jet on the bakery's gone. So the wife is enjoying this whole 
the the proceeds as well. So it's not like he hid it from her. What kind of sentence did he get? Well, so he pled guilty to mail fraud, conspiracy to commit money laundering, loan fraud, and he was sentenced to 10 years in prison by a federal judge here in Dallas. So the, the way it went down is we initially arrest Sandy Jenkins on a criminal complaint because we wanted to get him into custody fast. Right. And we do that. He waives detention. He agrees to just go into custody. And that was very quick for a white collar case. We, we got this thing around July 4th, 2013. And he had Sandy in custody by sort of the middle of August. 2013, about six weeks. That is moving already, fast in a white collar case. I mean, you had to have all the all the documents and a team sorting through all this stuff, adding it all up, trying to figure out what's really business and what's personal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and the bakery certainly assisted us with that significantly. They had a couple of different law firms that got involved, and the fraud here was pretty simple to prove. So we could prove count of mail fraud pretty easily. Right. And then it was a question of how, how do you add up the total? One of the things we did in that case that was a little bit unique is that we went to the magistrate judge and said, look, Sandy Jenkins makes $50,000 a year legitimately. Kay Jenkins doesn't work at all. So their legitimate income is relatively modest. So we want authority to go into their houses and we want to seize anything of significant value. And we got that authority from the court. So unlike a typical seizure warrant situation where you have a very detailed tracing of criminal proceeds into particular assets and you have the authority to seize specific assets, we went in there and said, look, anything in their possession that has significant value is evidence of the crime itself. Right. So if he's in the possession of 50 luxury watches, all of which uh, outpace his legitimate income, we want to take them. We want to take them because we want to use it to prove that that he was stealing this money. It's evidence of the crime itself. Mm -hmm. And we got that authority. So we went in very quickly in, in either late July, early August to both his home in Corsicana and his home in Santa Fe. And we were able to seize everything of value in the home, piano, wine collection, massive numbers of watches, jewelry, furs. Uh, we seized multiple vehicles at that point in time. We took a huge number of assets from him and we were able to do that and secure them quickly. And ultimately, when we get to the end of the road in the case, those things had a value of roughly $4 million that we were able to turn back over to the bakery. The bakery mm -hmm. wanted the actual assets as opposed to having the United States Marshals sell the assets. And we turned those things back over to the bakery and reduced Sandy's restitution obligation by a little over $4 million because that's the value we put on it. You have a career as an AUSA for approximately 11 years. Why did you transition to private practice? What made you decide to switch gears? You know, I don't know that I ever intended to stay forever at the government. It was certainly a great job. I loved it. I uh, loved going to work every day and working with the other AUSAs and the agents from various law enforcement agencies. You know, I, I reached a point where I had, I think, accomplished the goals I'd set out for myself upon joining. I'd gotten in the courtroom a number of times. I prosecuted the full scope of white-collar criminal matters, tried a lot of cases. 
and just felt like it was the right time to challenge myself in different ways in private practice. Like I mentioned at the outset, you know, there's a huge component of private practice that is marketing, sales, business development. It's not something you, it's not a skill set you develop when you're a prosecutor. That's not part of the job description. And so that's a new challenge for me. And so I'm excited to have that opportunity to push and expand my skills. Also just I believe strongly in the criminal justice system, and I believe strongly that the only way it can work is to have people who are willing to fight on both sides of a particular case. People who do things and they're accused of doing things that are wrong, it it may not actually be the case that the government's got it right and they deserve a strong, vigorous defense. And there is an obligation to hold the government in check to make sure that it exercises its power with responsibility. I failed to uh, go back. Let me go back to the previous question real quick. Whatever happened to the wife? When we looked at the evidence in the case, Sandy Jenkins was the one responsible for stealing the money. He was cutting the checks. He was hiding it in the bakery system, and he was mailing them to the creditors. And we didn't feel like we could put that kind of charge on Kay Jenkins, the wife. Right. But when we looked at the full scope of what was going on, you had – $17 million of just flat-out spending by both of them. She was equally involved in spending money on the different credit cards, going on the trips, going to Santa Fe, buying luxury jewelry, uh, luxury watches, So, uh, and receiving, as call them gifts or, or whatnot, from Sandy, the various things that he bought for her. And so you have... This person who is certainly benefiting from the massive, massive embezzlement, who's Mm -hmm. certainly aware of the couple's personal finances. And so the question comes, like, is she somebody that deserves a criminal charge? And if so, what? Right. Um, And so the natural conclusion that we reached was that Kay Jenkins was part of a conspiracy to launder money. Every time they spent money that was stolen, that's an act in furtherance of money laundering, right? The money laundering laws are designed to prevent people from utilizing the proceeds of their crimes. And Kay Jenkins certainly engaged in those acts. So we identified a number of instances where she was the one making purchases that easily exceeded the $50,000 a year that they made legitimately. She dropped two fifty dollars on watches in Aspen on one instance. She was flying on her own on the private jet at various times. So we made the decision to charge her with conspiracy to commit money laundering and then engaging in monetary transactions over $10,000, which is a separate criminal offense. Mm-hmm. And then she signed off on the loan applications that included false representations about Sandy and Kay's income. Now, see, I I can see exactly where she could be culpable on that part. Is that where she was charged with ultimately? You're talking about the money laundering conspiracy. Do you not have to know that there was a – you have to at least have some type of knowledge that had to be criminal activity that was the proceeds of this, not necessarily know the exact criminal activity. So is that what the the legal argument was? That's right. So to be culpable under a money laundering theory, 
you don't have to know how the money's being stolen. Yeah. Uh, the precise mechanics of what he's doing, how he's doing it, how he's cutting the checks, whatnot. What you have to know, and the government has to prove, is that you know that the money is unlawful. Right. That the money is unlawfully obtained in some fashion. And so that was the uh, – it's certainly circumstantial evidence that we believed um, we would have gone to trial on and we, we think we would have convicted her on had she not pled guilty. But we would have proven that they made $50,000 a year legitimately, and they were spending well over that on a regular basis for a long period of time with Kay Jenkins' signature on the receipts and the invoices. So she was perfectly aware of what was going on from a spending standpoint. Mm -hmm. The first time your husband comes home and hands you a very nice piece of jewelry and comes up with some explanation for why or how he got it, maybe you look past it. But the second time, the third time, the fourth time, the and first, the, and, lexus, the, and the diamond gets second. bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> exactly. You know, when, when you're on yeah. your fifth sky blue Lexus in a couple of years, you know, you have to start wondering where is this money coming from, and do I believe these stories? And then, you know, what ultimately bore out is that there were different stories told to Kay Jenkins at different times. So the stories weren't even consistent, and the reality was Kay Jenkins just just didn't want to ask any questions. Uh, Plausible deniability where they walk in and say, yes, they kind of stick your head in the sand. They know, they know what's going on. And they know she knows exactly what's going on. She knows that the money's being stolen and she is just refusing to, to really engage on the questions. And that's not to say every time this happens, a spouse gets charged because I have plenty of other embezzlement cases where we didn't charge a spouse, even though they benefited in similar fashion. But oftentimes the numbers weren't as big. The fraud didn't go on for as long. And you could make an argument that perhaps the spouse just was in the dark or or had some reason to be unaware entirely or or wasn't somebody that warranted criminal prosecution. But this case was extreme. Seventeen sure, million dollars sure. in eight years. I mean it's it's a crazy amount of money. I would dare say as a prosecutor, once you saw her sign that document, knowing that that loan application was false, that, that's that's an easy one. That would be a very – Yeah. Yeah, you, it's, right. that's an easy one. You had to sign this document saying you made a you know a million dollars a year or whatever else it is when you knew you didn't. Uh, but yeah, just just benefiting because uh, someone says, I love you, honey. Here's you a brand new diamond ring. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can understand that because it's a tough call. It really is. But when they sign a document, to me, that's, that's an easier one for sure. Yeah. No, no question. To circle back on the question you asked out at the beginning, Sandy Jenkins got 10 years. Kay Jenkins got five years probation from the court over the government's objection. We certainly asked for some amount of prison time in her case, but the federal judge here in Dallas who had the case uh, determined that she didn't need to spend time in prison for her involvement in this. And so she completed her probation term maybe a year ago or so. Uh, roughly, I think she was sentenced in September of 2015. So September 2020, she would have been off probation. And there's a judgment probably against her for millions. Yeah, judgment against her for $12 million in restitution, which, as you and I both know, that'll probably never get paid in, in any. But if she wins the lottery action. tomorrow, the government has a standing where they, they can take the money as part of the restitution. Sure. The government would be able to get the 12, make the victim whole, and move on from there. But 
I'm not holding my breath to collect that. (laughs) When it comes to after all that, it's kind of like out of your court. It's like, uh, you know what? It's, it's, it's no longer my ball game on to the next crime to investigate. You know, this is, this is kind of done. Yeah. Let the, uh, let somebody else do what the collection side of it. Right. Right. What area do you practice now privately? So my practice at Haynes and Boone is focused on all forms of white collar criminal defense, healthcare fraud, securities fraud, tax, cyber, anything white collar nature I would take on. It also encompasses government investigations and more generally internal investigations on behalf of of businesses or entities. And uh, it also covers uh, civil or regulatory matters. So for instance, I've done a lot of work with the Securities and Exchange Commission in Fort Worth when mm-hmm. I was a criminal prosecutor and certainly want to be available to represent folks under investigation by the SEC. And then I did a lot of work criminally on the healthcare side, but I worked closely with some of our civil prosecutors, our civil AUSAs who did False Claims Act investigations and brought False Claims Act cases. And so representing individuals and entities who are under investigation civilly where there may be some criminal component lurking in the background. With your experience dealing with federal agents and criminal investigators and fraud examiners, give me one or two of the top tips you would say of things that they should do and maybe some that they shouldn't do. And this is largely coming from my experience at the government. Oftentimes when I work with a fraud examiner, CPA, investigator, the focus is deep, deep, deep into the numbers, right? So it's an analysis of the bank account, the money that comes in, the money that comes out, and it's sort of bottom line, here's how much is involved, here are the particular transactions. And one of the things that I always thought separated a good investigator from a really great investigator is that you have to keep in mind that the numbers tell a story. Mm -hmm. The numbers bring are just instances in some person's life that, yes, they're spending money at this place, or yes, they're going to this ATM, or yes, they're using this bank account. But what is the real story of what's going on beyond just the numbers? And so I think that one big tip for any financial investigator is to take a step back from the numbers and look at it more from what's really happening here for this person. What are they doing? How are they doing it? And don't forget the story because you can have a great financial case that clearly shows somebody has done something inappropriately with the money. But when you get in front of the jury, you have to be able to do it and present it in a way that tells a story that makes sense to them. Right. Just a quick, simple example. I prosecuted a guy for investment fraud, and you know, we tried a very simple case against him. He had raised a little over a million bucks from a series of victims who all thought they were investing in real estate projects in the Dallas area. In reality, there were no real estate projects, and he was just stealing and pocketing the money. And so it was easy to show, okay, here's the deposit of the investor's funds. Here's an analysis of how the money is spent. But one of the things that was lost in it that we figured out right right as we were getting ready for trial is that he would blow through all of his money, and then he'd go solicit another investor. Right. So we could clearly show that he'd bring in several hundred thousand dollars, spend it, and then go find somebody else to invest. Uh, yeah, he has and to so find was, a new victim to uh, refill he, the well. Well, 
<laughs> he's broke. Yeah, right? exactly. So every time he was broke, he went out and found another investor and then lived off that for a month, two months, however long he could, however big the investment was, and then he'd go find somebody else. Mm-hmm. And being able to present the financial evidence in a way that told that story was compelling to the jury that it was they understood the why behind the numbers and not just saw the numbers. And so that's an instance where I really thought the forensic accountant at the FBI separated himself from others and did an incredibly great job of presenting the numbers in a way that the jury could understand not just the details of it, but the reasons behind it. Oh, yeah. It also is a great show of willfulness is that the guy had no intention of even making this into an investment just because once the right. money would once the money uh, dried up, he had to go find a new victim. Yep, exactly. It adds to the the full picture of what the government has to prove, not just the honor about such and such date this transaction occurred. Mm-hmm. Right, that's easy to prove. That check is easily provable, but to really put it in context and to explain why somebody's doing it, not just that they did it, is important. What's a mistake that a examiner or a forensic accountant has done? You're like, don't do that again. Because <laughs> sure. I've got a story or two, I can tell you that much. If you've been in this, no. in this business long enough, you've got your rear end kicked by a federal judge at some time or another, <laughs> right? Or you've right. had a prosecutor or defense attorney who just kind of kicked you around a little bit as an agent, going, "Don't do that." Okay, right. Right, you're right. You know, it wasn't a moral issue. It was just like knucklehead. Don't do that again. Sort of a simple one that would come up from time to time when I was with the government would be. Somebody would follow the money to a point and then they would just stop. And so what I mean by that is, you know, you see investor funds go into a bank account and then those funds get transferred to a different account and then they get spent on a credit card bill. And yes, it is the case that perhaps that person should not be spending any of the money, investor money on the credit card bill. And that is perhaps enough to prove that what they did was wrong. But there's another step there. Right. Right. Go ahead yeah. and take that next step. Go get what they're buying at the credit, whatever they spend on their credit card. Like we want to follow the money into as as sort of narrow uh, an expenditure as we possibly can, because again, that tells the why mm-hmm. of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So when you're following the money, especially in the government, where you have the power of the grand jury subpoena and you can obtain all these records, follow it to its most Natural Uh, conclusion. Natural conclusion. Absolutely right. Um, That's harder to do when you're on the private side, right? Because you don't have the same subpoena power that a federal investigator, a federal prosecutor does. Completely understand because at the end of the day, the jury, your audience is going to want to know, okay, where did he spend the money at? I want to know. They want to right. see the the diamond ring and the and give them why in order to prosecute this individual. Don't give them doubts about it. Give them the reasons why. You know, they, no one wants to right. prosecute someone for paying her a credit card bill. But yeah, you got two or three girlfriends. Juries on the are side. human beings. Oh yeah, juries yeah. are human beings. They're like anybody else. They're going to be looking for a story more than anything, and they're going to remember the story when they're back in the jury room deliberating. They're not going to remember necessarily precise details of each particular transaction. Correct. They're going to uh, largely take it as given that those transactions occur. They're going to be trying to say, why did those transactions occur, and were the reasons behind them criminal? And the money can tell that story. So don't 
don't think that you're only presenting your story through your investors, your victims, whatnot. You're presenting it through every piece of evidence that you have. And conversely, as a defense attorney, you have to be prepared to, if the money tells some other story, you have to be looking at it from the perspective of what's what's the reason, what is the why behind these financial transactions? Because anybody engaged in these this conduct that ends up getting charged criminally, they have explanations too for what's mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. Very good. That's a cool story about the fruitcake. Final four questions. What is your biggest motivation now? I'm motivated by a couple of different things, I would say. Personally, I have three kids and they motivate me to to be a good dad, to be a good parent to them, to be there for them, to be able to provide for them in, in ways that my parents provided for me. So that's certainly a motivation, but also a motivation to push myself uh, in this new role at Haynes and Boone, back on the private side, uh, out of the government. And, you know, like we talked about, there are different skill sets that you have to have to be successful on the defense side. And so I'm constantly motivated and pushing myself to expand those skill sets to be successful in them and to develop a, a business and a practice here at Haynes and Boone. So I'm excited about that opportunity. What book or books have changed your life or thinking? I don't know that I would say that they necessarily changed my life or my thinking, but certainly had an impact on sort of my view of the world. So there's kind of two that I would talk about. The first is a book by Cormac McCarthy called Blood Meridian. It's set in the 1800s, sort of in the West, and it involves an individual who falls in with sort of a, a gang of individuals who kind of take the law into their own hands and exercise sort of the frontier justice. And I think it's really a illustration of why the rule of law is so important, why we need courts, why we need prosecutors, mm-hmm. why we need defense attorneys, why we need law enforcement, and why everybody's got to do their job from a a uh, high standard of morality and ethics, and otherwise uh, justice can just start running amok and not always be used to serve appropriate ends. And so I think Blood Meridian is it's a great book. Cormac McCarthy is an amazing writer if you've never read any of his stuff, but he's got a whole series of books. Blood Meridian stands out in my mind as one that really illustrates the importance of the rule of law. Is that fiction or nonfiction? It's it's fiction. Okay. The gang was an actual gang that existed back in the 1800s, but the, it's a definitely a fictionalized book, but sort of set loosely around things that actually happened back in the 1800s in the West. And then the second, I'm a huge fan of presidential biographies. Uh, I've read a large number of biographies of presidents. It's just a area that I really, really like. And the one that stands out the most is the Edmund Morris series on Theodore Roosevelt, uh, The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt, Theodore Rex. Those are outstanding books. If you've never studied Theodore Roosevelt as a person, you see somebody who was so active, so intellectually interested in things, so driven. And uh, his Man in the Arena speech has always stood with me, where he talks about how important it is to just get in the ring and, and try. And even if you fail, at least you're in the ring, at least you're trying, uh, at least mm-hmm. you're taking a shot. Mm-hmm. And to not back down, not be afraid of putting yourself out there and, and going for it. And I think that's an important lesson for anybody in life, that you have to just step up and take chances 
uh, even when it pushes you outside your comfort zone. Share something you've purchased in the last 12 months, less than $100, that you enjoyed or made your job easier. It's silly, but over the last 18 months or so, there was a large portion of that where I spent time working at home. And it wasn't until probably a a good nine, 10 months into the pandemic that I finally went out and bought myself a comfortable office chair. I can't remember what I spent on it, so I might have spent more than 100 bucks on it. But that certainly made my job a lot easier. When the pandemic hit, I had... I took one of those government chairs and stuck it in my house. <laughs> oh, well, that's was, smart. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, just well, no one's using the government office anyway. So I might as well take the chair. So I used, I, I brought it, and then later on, once I left and retired, I was like, well, it wouldn't be ethical for me to keep the chair, even though they probably would never miss it. They're still out of the office yet, so uh, I'll go ahead sure. and you know replace it. And I had to go down to the local office depot or Office yeah. Max and go sit in a bunch of chairs and find, try to find one. So that was that was probably around a hundred bucks that I spent on the chair, maybe yep. a little bit more. Um, huge fan of the Apple AirPods, and certainly for working at home to have AirPods, but that's certainly way more than a hundred bucks. Oh yeah, well it's got Apple's name on it, so yeah, yeah, that'd be a hundred bucks. All right, if you had to do something else, if you get fired today, you could no longer be a lawyer. What would you be doing? Professional baseball, professional golf are not going to happen for me, despite what I thought when I was a kid. I've always been into numbers and data. I think it's one of the reasons why I was attracted to white-collar criminal investigations and prosecutions is that I've always been into large amounts of data. I've been a huge baseball fan since I was a little kid, and so I would try to do something in the baseball world focused on data and data analytics. You know, the Moneyball era is here. It's it's everywhere now. Every team has a data analytics department where they are constantly scrutinizing baseball statistics and looking for advantages that statistics can bear out and show. And so I think if I if I had in my way, if I had to do something else, I'd certainly want to get involved in that. Cool. Well, thank you, Nick. Thank you so much for your time on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Good luck to you and your practice, and thank you so much for your service to the country uh, as an AUSA. I really do appreciate it. Thoroughly enjoyed the episode. Appreciate you being here. Thank you. Appreciate the time. All right. Thank you.